This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. up on today's show, the battle continues over the future of Athabasca University. We're also going to talk today about Russia's economy and how it seems to be doing better than people had expected. And hospitalizations for eating disorders among young women jumped dramatically during the pandemic, more than 50%. About six weeks ago, Premier Jason Kenney paid a visit to Athabasca and uh, wrote the latest chapter in the ongoing struggle over the future of Athabasca University. Uh, a, town hall me- a town hall meeting was held to discuss the situation, and Kenny told those in attendance that he'd give the university a deadline of June 30th to come up with a plan to bring more university staff into the community and to keep them there. Now, the president of the university, Peter Scott, says um, he's been blindsided by all of this. He's not in, at all in agreement with what the government says should be done with Athabasca University. Now, we did invite him to join us on the show this morning. He sent us a statement that says the university's position remains as it has been previously reported, so he declined the request, okay? Uh, but Advanced Education Minister Dimitrios Nicolaitis did agree to come on the show and at least give us the government position on this situation. And, uh, Minister, I appreciate you agreeing to do that. Thanks for joining us today. Of course, always happy to be on, Shay. Now, the, uh, the, the heart of the matter here, I guess, if we boil it right down, is whether or not or how many staff and faculty employed by Athabasca University actually live in Athabasca, right? That's the discussion at hand. Uh, well, that, that, that's part of it. I think the, the real heart uh, of this conversation is, you know, what, what is the role of, of Athabasca University? And, of course, the, the university exists in the town of Athabasca for a reason. That was a decision of uh, former governments in, in 19, uh, back in the 1970s and 80s to place the university in Athabasca to build offices and facilities uh, so that the institution can be based there. And we uh, simply want to ensure that uh, that mission and that vision continues on. But, I mean, to be fair, the entire inception, the, the plan that Peter Lougheed had was, one, to develop a university, and two, that university would be an economic driver for whatever region it ended up in. I mean, that's part of the reason for this university existing, according to the government. Yeah, precisely. The, the, the university has, um, uh, you know, at its inception, had, had two fundamental objectives and purposes. Number one was to ensure that any Albertan and, and subsequently Canadian who is not able to physically go to a post-secondary campus for whatever reason and receive a university degree would be able to do that through Athabasca's distance delivery model. You know, that was objective yeah, number yeah. one. And second objective uh, was to uh, bring... Uh, jobs and and economic opportunity to uh, communities in in rural Alberta. Um, so June thirtieth is a deadline that's been given to the school to come up with a plan to um, bring and retain faculty and staff in Athabasca. What are you looking for? Like, what sort of guidelines has the school been given? How much is there a percentage they have to meet? What does that demand or the requirement look like? 
Yeah, no, I haven't given, uh, you know, specific uh, percentages or mentioned specific positions. Uh, I believe that that's, you know, that's best left up to the university itself uh, and their board of governors and their administrative team to have a look at their operations and determine uh, what that looks like. And that's why we've asked for a detailed report on June 30th to give us those details. I think it's government's responsibility to set a clear direction and then for the institutions to uh, operationalize and implement that. And so what I'm looking for specifically on June 30th is a clear plan with timelines, um, you know, numbers of positions, and an, an overall broad plan that indicates um, how the university will uh, move uh, administrative um, and executive functions to the town, again, what timeline that looks like. And as well, as I've mentioned in, in my note to the university, um, if they need any um, assistance and help from government in order to achieve those goals. Of course, we're, we're ready, willing, and able to support the university in any way that we need to, to help them achieve the goals that we've outlined. Now, the president of the university, Peter Scott, uh, as I say, he, his statement comes from previous reporting, so I'm just echoing what he said previously, largely to Global Mail. Um, he, he had the exact opposite plan to try and make it more of a virtual, not only for students, but for faculty and for professors as well. And the reason, he says, is to attract the best and the brightest. I mean, he's running the school. He wants to be able to attract people um, who may not want to live in Athabasca. And, you know, you can understand why some of these professors may not want to relocate or whatever the case may be. And he says in order to run the best school he can run, this doesn't make any sense. And the plan he had in place was the exact opposite. It was actually more virtual. I mean, I can be sympathetic to what he's saying in terms of we want to run the best school that we can, and we can't do that if they have to move to Athabasca. Uh, well, I don't know if I agree with that with that premise, because, uh, you know, for the last 50 years, uh, give or take, the uh, Athabasca University has excelled and, and and positioned itself as Canada's online university. They created Canada's first online MBA 20 years ago. Uh, they've given tens of thousands of Albertans and Canadians access to post-secondary education that wouldn't have been able to access post-secondary education otherwise. And they've done it all from a base of operations in Athabasca. So all we're saying is continue doing what you've been doing successfully over the past several decades. But there's always been a huge virtual component to that school. I mean, throughout its entire existence, as you mentioned, I mean, especially over the last 10, 15, 20 years, just a fraction of the actual staff has been on site. Do you want more than, um, you know, I think it peaked, what, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Like, that's what I'm saying. What's the standard that needs to be met here? Well, again, and I think that, that's, uh, that those are the details that the university needs to provide to us to, to let us know what what does look realistic. Uh, you know, and, and I didn't say in my letter that every single staff person should be based in Athabasca. I've said that you know, executive and senior administrative functions should be based there, but as it relates to, to broader faculty, to broader staff, I think that's up to the university to, again, give us the plan, give us the details, uh, what's, what's possible, what's not, what does that look like, um, and uh, so that we can work together. I, I think it's very important. Like, I really do believe that Athabasca University can continue to excel as Canada's online university, continue to offer programming to so many Albertans and Canadians with a base of operations in Athabasca. I, I don't think that uh, it's impossible to do that. In his statement to us, uh, President Scott said uh, he's focused on working with the ministry to meet their request. What's going on on that front? Um, are there discussions underway? Are you going to? Uh, what, what does that look like with the deadline in place? What's the process between now and June 30th? 
Yeah, well, I've had uh, so uh, I've had several conversations um, with the chair of the Board of Governors. Of course, the government of Alberta appoints the chair of the board of all of our post-secondary institutions and the majority of board members and uh, provides direction uh, to uh, to the board. And so I've done that and have had several conversations with the chair of the Board of Governors and other members of the board to provide additional clarity, uh, to talk about some additional nuances. And, um, uh, and I'm, I'm, again, I've always, always uh, reassured and offered my continued support and assistance to the board in any way, shape or form to help it achieve those goals and to de- uh, deliver a fulsome report to government on June 30th. You mentioned the board. Uh, to be fair, I think the premier, the way he spoke at the town hall meeting, from what I understand, um, was a little more—I um, don't know what the word is—maybe uh, confrontational, talking about giving more power to the municipality when it comes to the board that you're speaking about, um, things like that. Like he—he he seemed to make it very, very clear that it's this has to be done. Um, you know, when you talk about that board, how much control do they really have? And can you change the makeup of that board so that it, it falls more to the municipality? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the board, uh, the, the board has the, the, the complete power at the end of the day to, uh, I mean, the, the board hires, uh, one employee, which is the president of the institution. Uh, the government of Alberta appoints the board chair and appoints the majority of board members, um, and, you know, I think to, to the Premier's point that you raise, I mean, this, this is a very clear uh, directive to the institution about our expectations. Um, and in terms of representation from the town, you know, there's, it, it's not written in any legislation or regulation, but for many of our institutions, not just Athabasca, but a lot of our colleges that operate campuses in different communities, there's always this um, implied um, uh, uh, mission that there will be representatives on the board from those different communities that a college serves, or in this case, people from the town of Athabasca. And uh, so all we're doing, uh, what, what, one of the other pieces that we'll be doing is making some regulatory changes to indicate that uh, two to three positions should be set aside for people from uh, representatives from the community. And that's not new. As I mentioned, again, there's always been uh, folks from the community on the board. The, the same practice occurs with our colleges as when they have campuses in other communities. There's usually representatives from those communities on the board to ensure there's broad representation. Minister, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. I do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. That is Dimitrios Nicolaitis, who is Advanced Education Minister for the province of Alberta. And again, we did extend the invitation to Peter Scott, the Athabasca University president, to come on and, and give his side of the story. And uh, he politely declined. But um, I think we sort of present basically what this boils down to is he says, I want to run the best school that I can. I want to attract the best and the brightest talent. Uh, and in order to do that, we need to move to a more virtual environment for this faculty. And the province is saying, no, part of the reason that this university exists is to provide education and um, to make sure that we have an economic driver for the region. I mean, that's stated. So it's those two competing purposes that seem to have come to a point now where June 30th is the deadline to come up with a plan to please both masters there. And we'll keep you. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. 
to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Okay, an update now on the situation uh, with Ukraine. The list of sanctions against Russia just continues to grow. I mean, almost daily. They add something to it. Um, We've seen dozens of international companies shutting down their operations in that part of the world and leaving. All of it, of course, a result of the Western campaign to apply suffocating economic pressure on Russia to make them change what they're doing in that part of the world. But is it working? Not so far, anyway. Let's take a look at that. We're going to chat with Art Wu, who is a senior economist with the Bank of Montreal. Art, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, no worries. Happy to be on. So let's just take a look. What is the Russian economy like right now? It's been over two months now of this kind of intense pressure, the economic sanctions, all the rest that we mentioned. Has it worked? What's their economy look like right now? Well, it has worked. Uh, the economy is expected to experience a deep recession this year. I mean, when you look at the forecast, we're, we're looking for the economy, real GDP, which a lot of economists like to focus on. We're looking for it to decline around 10%. That's huge. Uh, compared to the pandemic in 2020, the economy only contracted 2.5%. But I think when you bring up your original point, I think early in, you know, uh, after the war began and, and, the thor- and you know, the West began to impose sanctions, mm-hmm. There was, a, there was a thought that maybe the West could engineer a financial crisis. Uh, that hasn't happened. But in terms of the economy, yeah, the Russian economy has experienced pain, but it's always a matter of perspective, right. how much pain. Yeah, and how much was expected. Why hasn't it been as effective as maybe some Western governments were thinking? I mean, energy is the big one, right? That tap continues to flow. That is exactly it. And that's honestly 70%, 65-70% of Russian exports. And, you know, some countries like Canada, U.S., and yes, we're not, we're not buying from them. But the reality is they still have a lot of outlets. So there are places like India, China, and surrounding neighbors that are buying exports, of, you know, buying up natural gas, buying oil. And you've got to remember, Russia is a huge producer of other goods that the world needs. Right. Wheat, nickel, cobalt, you know, the whole green energy transition. So, yeah, that is still that is still taking place. Another factor, if you'd allow me, that's really helping uh, to stem the situation is the fact that the, the government slapped on capital controls early on. So this prevents money from flowing out of the country, flowing out of the banking sector. It's helped stabilize the ruble. And yeah. that's obviously helped prevent Russia from having, you know, what's known as a sovereign debt default. So that's played a huge role, too. Is that why? I mean, because the ruble did tank, but then came right yeah. back and is actually doing quite well now. Yeah, that's right. Two things. Capital controls to prevent, you know, locals or, you know, domestic Russian residents from taking their money abroad. And two, they jacked up interest rates. So, you know, that that provided an incentive to keep money onshore, and that's protected the banking system. And so we haven't heard of so-called bank runs, you know, people lining up, lining up outside of banks and saying, hey, I want to get my money out of here and take it somewhere out of Russia. 
so as you say, um, you know, there was a economic collapse was hoped for or, or whatever the case may be that hasn't really materialized. Now we're hearing the EU saying we have a six month plan to get off of Russian oil. So maybe they've changed the parameters here a bit here, Art. Um, if they manage to do that, that would be a real nail in the coffin for Russia if they can move Europe off of Russian energy, right? It's, uh, it's so hard to say. So look, clearly it's, it's, it's uh, a good measure from Europe's perspective. They want to push Russia, uh, you know, put more pressure on the economy. So they want to sanction, obviously, oil, Get, get off oil by the end of the year, both crude oil and refined products. But the reality is, if somebody else is still buying, that's still providing relief to Russia. Now, they may not be able to sell it at the same price, and we know that's the case. Their benchmark oil is selling probably at a $30 discount to Brent or WTI, uh, West Texas Intermediate, the North American benchmark. So that's helping. So unless others stop buying there's still relief for Russia. Um, looking out, though, as you say, you are expecting a pretty large contraction in the Russian economy this year. Yeah, there's no doubt because the consumer sentiment has been hit. So consumers aren't buying. Inflation's going up. It's up 15 nearly, probably heading towards 20%. So that's eating into real incomes. So that that is a problem, and uh, and as I mentioned, you know they're not getting the same bang for their buck for their exports because yeah, yeah. some people aren't buying them. So there is pressure, but it's not an intense pressure that's going to cause an immediate crisis. Uh, Art, thank you so much for the insight. Really appreciate you joining us today. Okay, no problems. Anytime. That is Art Wu. Art is a senior economist with the Bank of Montreal, giving us a breakdown of what the state of the Russian economy is right now and uh, what we may expect it to be um, a little bit later. Troubling report out from the Canadian Institute for Health Information today. Um, The headline reads, Hospitalizations for eating disorders among young women jumped by more than 50% during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, They've gone through the data, and they say that the pandemic took a significant toll on the mental health of children and youth. Hospitalizations for young women with eating disorders aged 10 to 17 went up by nearly 60% since March of 2020, which is an increase of about 52 hospitalizations per 100,000 people in 2019-2020 to 82 hospitalizations in 2020-2021, um, and it's in contrast to the general decrease in hospitalizations and emergency department visits for most other conditions among the rest of the population in Canada. Uh, troubling, troubling. So let's see what it translates to here in Alberta. What are we seeing? We're going to chat now with Angie Mellon, who is the Public Awareness Coordinator for Eating Disorder Support Network of Alberta. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I mean, those numbers come on a national level. Are you seeing similar kinds of increases in the number of um, Alberta adolescents seeking medical attention for eating disorders during the pandemic? So we actually have noticed an increase in people seeking uh, hospitalizations in the province. And particularly for uh, our organization, the Eating Disorder Support Network of Alberta, we have been seeing a whole lot 
of more people coming to our groups. Our groups are now consistently full. And we also have wait lists for a lot of groups that start even before the group has been posted. So we know people are really looking for resources in the province. Um, I imagine it's a question that if if you had the answer, we wouldn't have this problem. But why? Why do you think we're seeing such a, a massive increase? I mean, what what kind of indicators are out there that's uh, you has you saying you know this this might be why we're seeing so many more people? Yeah. So eating disorders are really a multifaceted issue. They result from a number of factors, including genetics and environment. But what we are seeing is really that isolation part, um, especially for kids schooling from home, having to quarantine, having to isolate. That really can be a driving factor in the development of eating disorders. Also, the lack of structure. I mean, kids having now to work and do schooling from home, they miss that sort of schooling layout where they have recess, they have lunchtime, that sort of stuff. And then there's also a heightened anxiety. I mean, for yeah. anyone, this uh, pandemic is makes anyone anxious. So for, especially for kids, they can feel that. And so eating disorders really thrive in secrecy because there's a whole lot of shame. There's a lack of information. There's fear going into it. So really all this compounds into kind of a melting pot that really makes eating disorders uh, more likely. Angie, help me out. Is, would it be fair to say that an eating disorder in a young person could be a symptom of some of the things that you mentioned, the anxiety, the isolation, the overall mental health um, hardship that people have been through? Could that be uh, a contributing factor to why an eating disorder is developed? Or is it is there a specific reason or can it just be uh, that's one way that young people respond to mental health crises? Yeah, so... Uh, especially with the heightened anxiety, uh, people might be looking for a sense of control. And one way they can do that is through their food intake. So that definitely can uh, be a contributing factor to why we're seeing the increase in eating disorders. But but once again, like eating disorders and other mental health concerns, such as depression and anxiety, they can happen at the same time, but they can also arise because of one another. So yeah. maybe someone has an eating disorder, they could then be diagnosed with anxiety or depression. But also if someone has anxiety or depression, that could lead to the development of an eating disorder. Um, you know, now with the pandemic being what it is, and most kids are back in school and life has returned to whatever normal is going to look like, do you anticipate that some of these situations that developed over the course of the last two years can be corrected. I mean, there's going to be lasting hardship because of some of this, right? Yeah, unfortunately, we're probably going to see the effects of this for years to come, especially since uh, eating disorders take years uh, to recover from. On average, it takes about seven years to recover from an eating disorder. And even in that process, you might have relapses and uh, throughout the journey, recovery isn't linear. So unfortunately, these problems are going to have a long-lasting effect. Um, going to the hospital, going to the emergency department sounds like that's a that's a pretty desperate point in the progress of this condition, Angie. Um, if you're a parent or a young person out there listening to this and you think this may be something that's starting and developing, and uh, what, what's the best course of action? I mean, what do you do? Uh, Well, early intervention is really the best thing for uh, eating disorder recovery and prevention. So when you're starting to see those signs that someone might be slipping, like isolating, uh, changes in weight, changes in mood, that sort of stuff, it might be a good idea to have a conversation with that person. And if you decide that it is something that is maybe a problem needing to look into, we always recommend starting with your uh, GP or your Mm -hmm. uh, primary care network, just because those people can then 
refer you to those higher services such as the Edmonton Eating Disorders Program or the Calgary Eating Disorders Program or even get you in contact with some private care providers. So basically, like with all so many of these conditions, ask for help, right? It is available. Yes. Yes, definitely. And if you need anything, our organization is always willing to help direct people in the right way to go and give people resources on who to contact. And you can always email us at info at edsna.ca. And we are definitely quick on getting back to those people. Angie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That is Angie Mellon. Uh, We appreciate her joining us. Angie, uh, talking about this study that came out from the... uh Canadian Institute of Health and Information. Troubling, troubling findings, for sure. Um, but we know, and we've known from the beginning, that um, these kinds of, um, you know, it's it's just a response to the, the pandemic. It's going to affect different people different ways. And we know that the stress on mental health has been really, really tough. I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the air over time, but um, there's a survey that came out earlier this week talking to Canadians about, you know, what this pandemic has done to us. And as I've told you, the pandemic will be long gone and the damage that was done to society will linger and will last much, much longer. That's going to be the real thing for us to deal with once the virus itself does whatever it does. Um, There's a new poll out. It's by the Canadian Mental Health Association and UBC. It finds that 13% of Canadians are showing empathy down more than 10% from before the pandemic. It's called pandemic fatigue, and these researchers say it could be contributing to this crisis that we're seeing in mental health. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a sense of wanting to work together, to listen. But as the weeks and months went on... People did become a bit more polarized with each other. Margaret Eaton is the CEO of CMHA and says people just stopped listening to one another. That ability to understand how another person is feeling, to think about what their perspective is, and to really feel that and try to understand it. The answer? Just listen, be quiet, and, you know, let them explain how they're feeling. Which may seem overly simplistic, but when you think that the same survey shows nearly 4 in 10 felt like their mental health had gotten worse through the pandemic, it might be worth lending a non-judgmental ear to someone. Dave Woodard, Global News. Sure, Dave. We'll get right on that. He's right, of course. Um, you know, <laughs> it, we've entered a phase in uh, human history where we just yell at each other and point fingers. Um, the survey shows nearly 4 in 10 people feel like their mental health It's gotten worse through the pandemic. Four in ten. That line jumped out at me. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.